So I understand there is a football game today. Who's playing? <laughs> well, I understand from Sue this morning that God does not care about football. He cares about people. Now, it's actually very biblical because there is no verse anywhere in the scriptures that points to football. However, in the beginning, God likes baseball. He's mentioned it twice in the beginning. So we're going to talk just for a moment about um, what equates to football. <laughs> Last time uh, when we started the book of Hebrews, I mentioned that it is a polemic letter. And I didn't take the time to explain that fully just because I had other things I wanted to communicate. So I wanted to, to save that until this morning and talk a little bit here at the beginning about polemics versus apologetics. Okay. And uh, what we have here is turn with me to 1 Peter and chapter 3. This is a passage you've probably all heard before. Um, and we'll look at verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I don't hear pages rustling anymore. So, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We always want to kind of place that into uh, the context of uh, a kitchen table and, you know, two women sharing coffee or two guys in a truck driving down the road um, sharing tea or vice versa. And uh, yet the context of this is very different. Yes, we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. But let's look at verse 13. Uh, bump it up to 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord, uh, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We'll just stop it there. The context is that the person Peter is talking to, the believer, has found themselves under some kind of severe persecution. Don't have fear of them, he says. This isn't a friendly conversation going on here. This is be prepared to defend your faith against those who would bring some kind of overt slanderous attack against you maybe even some violence in in much of the world and certainly in peter's lifetime because you put faith in christ jesus someone is attacking you be prepared to answer why you have that hope, where it comes from, and what it means. But do it respectfully with honorable behavior. That is an apologetic. You're not apologizing for anything. They just kind of share the same root word. It's an apologetic. It means to make a reasoned and planned defense of one's own faith. Apologetics defends one's own truth claims and it's very popular in the church over the centuries to have developed uh, apologetic responses all right polemics on the other hand like the book of hebrews this letter to the jews who would know christ Polemics is arguing against the truths, the truth claims of another. Okay? And here in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has started out by talking about angels and debunking that um, notion that was widespread amongst many of the Jews who wanted to believe in Jesus as Messiah, but just weren't quite there, um, were right on that fence and believed uh, because someone had told them that this Jesus was an angel to be revered, yes, because he was angelic, but not necessarily either human or God. Polemics is mounting a an attack if you will a respectful attack but mounting an attack against someone else's notions you're not defending your own in this case polemics comes from the greek word that means war if you look up a polemic in the just the regular dictionary it's going to tell you that it is an aggressive attack to defend one's or to um, make known one's um, faith in a sense of convincing the other people. Turn to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. 
Okay, being ready to defend your faith is an apologetic, and a polemic is being ready to debunk someone else's notion. I have a, a very long, long friendship um, with a fellow, a 50-year friendship. Uh, he just passed away um, and was a lifelong um, atheist, I presume, until, uh, you know, he met his maker. Um, he, he was the most virulent individual I've ever met who would say, there is no God, and I will not ever believe in a God. And here is why, and he would always point to science as his reasonings. And well, he's sadly finding out uh, the truth right now. When I would discuss with him, he never attacked my faith. He always just stated his own position, the truth that he wanted to believe in. And so when I would have any discussions with him, it would be in a polemic um, format. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish even disobedience or every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is a polemic argument destroying arguments of others about their own faith in the cosmos or in the crystals or in whatever else. And every lofty opinion, he says, that's raised against the knowledge of Christ. The Greek word is logismos. Uh, it's the root word, or it shares the root word with logos, uh, meaning the word or word. Um, people have their own opinions about things, and it's usually based on uh, nothingness and not on the word of God or some other, um, some other text uh, that would be fallible human reasoning itself. But they often just have a spurious notion that really is rejecting God, but having their own ideas. Apologetics is a defense. Polemics is an offense. Think about that in the sense of football. Since today there's a big game, I understand. Okay. In, in football, the, there's a defensive line. And it's preventing the other team from advancing on your goal. You're defending your goal in the defensive line. There's an offensive line whose task it is to push forward to the other team's goal, to capture the other team's goal. And that's the difference between an apologetic 
and a polemic. The apologetic is hold that line, hold that line. And a, um, a, a polemic, an apologetic is hold that line. A polemic is, you know, six points and then the extra, the extra field goal or the extra um, point after. So there are different strategies involved and different methods involved. And I just wanted to point that out because um, it's important for us to have some understanding that God's word from beginning to end isn't just a jumble of various writings collected by different um, cultures, the Jewish culture first collecting the Old Testament and then the, the New Testament church culture collecting those documents from the early church uh, writers. No, this is God's word that's planned from beginning to end. And there's methodologies that God has designed into each word, but especially into each um, book. And so the book of Hebrews is, is combating some Jewish notions about Jesus. It's not defending the author's faith. It's attacking those notions. So let's um, begin our study with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the opportunity to gather in your name to worship you um, with the remembrance of your sacrifice and to worship you by studying your word. Lord, I pray that you would just remove the distractions of today from our minds so that we can just focus on you and on your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so that brings us to the book of Hebrews. And go ahead and turn there. And we'll be in chapter two today. Kind of a short chapter. And it's a polemic, it's laying to rest the false teachings against Jesus of, uh, of Nazareth, who is the Messiah. And he started off in chapter one by showing from the Tanakh, the Old Testament in the Jewish language, the Old Testament, how Jesus is not an angel right? Angels are a lower created being, and Jesus, who is the creator of heaven and earth, and in fact, the creator of eternity, humbled himself even lower than the angels in becoming a man. He did not set aside his deity, uh, his power, his authority, his name, he set aside the glory that comes from that and humbled himself as a man, specifically as a servant man. Verse one, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, again, this is uh, addressing the Jews, not the church. We often want to pluck this passage out of scripture and say, 
that a person can lose their salvation if they go off the rails. Um, that's not the case. God will, uh, he is the hound of heaven and will bring us back and uh, we can take that to the bank. But in fact, it's written to the Jews. This is so important for us to understand the context of this passage and, and many others. Okay, the context is that the Jews have this special salvific relationship with God that he has called the Jews out for a special purpose to enact his plan of the ages through the Jewish people. He gave us the scriptures through the Jewish people, virtually almost all of the writings of both the Old and New Testament are written by Jews. He's given us his Messiah, his anointed one, who is, in fact, God incarnate, God in the flesh. He gave him through the Jews. And so this author here is desperately trying to convince his fellow Jews not to lose sight of that. Therefore, we, the Jews, who have this special relationship with Elohim, the God, we have to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They don't, he doesn't want them to lose sight of what they know specifically from the Old Testament. Okay. The argument um, in chapter one, and he's going to extend that into chapter two, is laying to rest that Jesus is an angel. Verse two. For since the message declared by angels provided, I'm sorry, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we neglect so great salvation, right? Angels were the messengers of God's word in many, many instances. Back in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, uh, it says that myriads of angels accompanied God in delivering the message to Moses. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen gave his plea before those he was who was stoning him uh, for what they presumed to be heresy, proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. He concluded in verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So the law and the Old Testament itself were delivered to God's people and put into effect by God's messengers. Over and over again throughout scripture, we have prophets delivering the word, but often the prophet is receiving the word from the angel of the Lord. In many cases in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is in fact God himself. 
um, being his own messenger, but that's another discussion. So essentially this little passage says the law is binding and every violation will be punished. So how can we Jews escape condemnation if we ignore God's salvation through Jesus? We have this special relationship with God and we don't want to drift from it. And how will we escape condemnation if we do? Continuing on in the second part of verse three, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to to his, uh, attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Many people were involved in witnessing to one another about Messiah in the Old Testament and certainly in the New Testament. And God backed that testimony up with signs and wonders, miracles. And then after Pentecost or at Pentecost, um, the signs from the Holy Spirit in uh, in 1 Corinthians, the opening chapter, verse 22, Paul writes, uh, For Jews demand signs and wonders, and Greeks seek wisdom. He's kind of addressing the church at Corinth, which was largely composed of Jews who now believed in Christ, but they had brought in a lot of their former pagan and um, humanist ideals into the church and were um, you know, not uh, behaving in a Christ-like manner. So Paul is writing his two epistles to the church at Corinth to help correct those things. And he's pointing out that the Jews loved to see stuff happen. They loved to see miracles, signs and wonders. Jesus was always being asked to perform. You know, we've seen what you've, we, what you've done, but we'll really believe if you do it again for us, right? We've heard about what you've done, but we want to see it ourselves because we like seeing that stuff. And uh, yet the Greeks, they were all about wisdom and knowledge and, you know, contemplating those things. Uh, so no one is without excuse. Well, what the angels had delivered and put into place was the law. But what the Lord Jesus Christ delivered and put into place was salvation. We know from Paul that the law was absolutely never intended to bring righteousness so that the doer of the law would become righteous. The person who was actually engaged fully in doing the law recognized that they were sinners and could not um, meet the holiness of God that the law demanded. And so on faith, they relied on his salvation, which ultimately came by way of Christ Jesus. So Jesus gives us the message of salvation, and that has been confirmed by signs and wonders, certainly in the times of 
the New Testament and for two millennia since then, um, as the Lord saw fit. So who can escape punishment if this is neglected? Well, especially the Jews, right? They had the Old Testament. They, they knew. In fact, they knew the Old Testament inside and out. Right? Even, even simple fishermen like Peter and John and James and Philip and the other guys, simple guys who didn't have a, a, a rabbinic education could understand the Old Testament. Now, they often got it wrong, um, even to this day. Uh, the Jews, um, as a people, miss Messiah Jesus. Fortunately, God has uh, given some that special knowledge that Jesus, in fact, is Messiah. So no one can escape the truth, right? Any of us, Jew or Gentile, can neglect the truth, but if we do, we won't escape judgment. We can escape, we can um, neglect the truth if we want, but we will not escape judgment is what he's talking about here. Moving on to verse 5. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The world is subjected to God's anointed one. The world is under the subjection of Christ Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Does that sound familiar? I read that in the... In the uh, Remembrance Hour two weeks ago, it's from Psalm 8. And I mentioned that the astronaut Buzz Aldrin, the man who was second to step out onto the moon's surface, and one of only a handful who have ever done so, uh, before he stepped out of the lunar landing module, he um, enjoyed a moment of communion with the Lord and read some verses out loud, which were broadcast over the NASA uh, radios. And much of Psalm 8 was, um, was read, including uh, as well as um, John, the first chapter, many verses from that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here are actually a few verses that... Uh, that John um, reads because it's relevant because the writer of Hebrews quotes him here. And I said John, but I meant Buzz. So let's turn, leave your thumb in Hebrews chapter 2 and turn to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. 
in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 8. And I will read verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Man is the the work the word here really means mankind it's anosh and it means a weakness or a limited um, mankind right it's not the the general word for a man which is adam or adam however what is man that you are mindful of him why do you care about man god and the son of man, that is not your kid, right? That is Ben Adam, that is Messiah, wherever the son of man is used in the Old Testament or in those references in the Gospels where um, others and Jesus call himself the son of man, that's Ben Adam, and it's a reference to Messiah. Verse five, and yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Again, this is in reference to Messiah, Jesus, who is the creator of heavens and earth and all eternity. Verses six, seven, and eight. You have put everything under his feet. Let's see. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air of the heavens. That's especially important for Margaret and I. The fish of the sea, which is especially important for John and Bruce and I don't know. 14 others in this room, probably. Um, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, right? Everything is under the submission of Ben Adam, Messiah, who is Jesus, not of the angels, right? God gave mankind dominion over the things of the earth. But Ben Adam, Messiah, is in view here as being the ultimate ruler, right? It's always about Messiah. So go back to Hebrews chapter 2. And verse 7, we'll pick it up. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. In subjecting all things to Messiah, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Even though right now, you and I may not realize that, we may not see that Jesus is in control. We may think that things are way out of control, 
and in, in many ways, in an earthly sense, they are. But Jesus is, in, all things are in subjection under Jesus. And that right now is not realized by us in real time. Who's the prince of this generation? Satan, right? Jesus is eternally God. He is eternally Elohim, the God who is the plurality of fullness. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all of eternity. He is eternally the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But right now, for a little while, he has given Satan limited stewardship over the earth as a trustee of Elohim's estate until Messiah, Ben Adam, is given his inheritance. But Satan is spoiling everything, right? Of course, he's not our worst enemy. We ourselves are our worst enemy. He kind of was the catalyst that got um, the sin nature going because of the fall in the garden but we can't blame Satan for our sin. We can only blame ourselves. Yet he is fouling the waters. But someday, the Father is going to turn to the Son, give him a nod, and say, go and collect your bride, right? the church. And God will return I'm just, uh, Jesus will return to the earth and the stopwatch for Israel's timetable will again um, start up, uh, finishing the 70th week of Daniel, which is a different study that we won't go into in the time of Jacob's trouble. So Satan for a little while has been allowed stewardship, right? Until he is eventually bound. Let's move on in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that the grace of God, uh, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone everyone right? he was for a little while he was made lower than the angels it's a temporary condition when god sent his son in the first advent his first appearing here the the greek word used is alato and it means birthed inferior right jesus who is Ben-Adam, the Messiah, was birthed into time in a lower position than he held. Kind of the ultimate prince in the pauper, where the, you know, Mark Twain's story about the prince and the pauper that switch places, and the, the prince um, goes and puts on the rags of the pauper and lives the life of the pauper for a while and vice versa. Well, that's what we have going on here, where Jesus, for a little while, took on the humanity of his own creation. He set aside his divine glory 
and humbled himself even a little lower than the angels who were also a created being like humans. But his finished work at the cross means that he took the punishment of death You know, my watch reminds me when my heart rate gets really fast, over 120 beats, and the only times it's ever do, it ever does that is when I'm up here preaching about most of the ways through my sermon. It's like, yes, okay, I can praise God. So Jesus at the cross paid that punishment. He took the death, uh, took the debt that we all owed, which was death, on himself because of our sin. So our sin was nailed to the cross with him, Paul writes. Our sin became dead to us because of Christ. So God's justice was satisfied Jesus was given glory and honor by the Father because of his obedience unto death and becoming that perfect sacrifice. Jesus at any time could have called down 10,000 angels and they would have ministered to him and delivered him from that infirmity. And yet he stuck it out even unto that horrible death on the cross right, and tasted death for each one of us. Now, physically, our bodies will die. Spiritually, we will go on living. And our choice in this lifetime is whether we go on living in Christ's presence because we believe in him or go on living outside of God's presence in turmoil and anguish and fire and brimstone. Okay. So, let's work, work through verse 11. For he who sacrifices, I'm sorry, for he who sanctifies, making a lot of simple mistakes here, he who sanctifies or sets apart and those who are sanctified or who are set apart all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. See, we we're both complete in Jesus. We share his spiritual DNA. When we come to know Christ, he gives us his spirit. And our spirit then testifies with the spirit of Christ in us that we are his. That's because we have his spiritual DNA that's the dominant in our lives. And so we are family with Christ Jesus. He is the one who separates us out, and we are the ones who are separated. The Greek word is hagiadzo, and it means to separate from profane things and to dedicate oneself 
or be dedicated to God. Jesus takes us out of the world and the profaneness of the sin in the world and sets us apart, sanctifies us for his glory and his purpose, not because of anything we do, but simply because of his mercy. We do not know why, who, I mean, what is it? Why would God give us the nod? Why would he give me the nod? And yet he did, right? He is the one who purifies the believer and separates us out for himself. It's the same um, Greek word that's also translated holy. Be holy as your father in heaven is holy. Be separated unto God, just as God is separated from the profaneness of the world. Right? So every believer is united in the same family along with the one who sanctifies, that is Jesus. Jew or Gentile, we are all in his family when we know him. And if we have his spirit, we know that we know him. Continuing on, verse 12, saying, I will tell you, tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. These are from Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8. Jesus is not going to blush before the Lord when he identifies us with him before his father and introduces us each. This is, this is my brother John, whose birthday it is today. Jesus trusted his father and all who trust in Jesus as Messiah are his family. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus shares our flesh and blood. He was birthed into time and humanity, not by the will of a human father, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The, the um, Holy Spirit coming on Mary in such a way that Mary would produce an offspring, a son, a seed, when the seed comes from the man. And Mary became a time portal, if you will, where God, Elohim, the creator of heavens and earth and all eternity, birthed through her womb into the world and became at the same time, 100% deity and 100% humanity. 
So people still buy the lie of Satan to reject so great salvation. That's what this polemic is about, specifically to the Jews, but to us as well as beneficiaries of all of the scripture, right? And the writer is telling specifically the Jews who had this special relationship with God, don't let it slip away. Can you imagine letting it slip away and the condemnation you will face if you turn your back on so great salvation? Right? So people are still bound by this slavery of sin and death and the fear of emptiness and rotting in the grave. And yet, God gave his son to eliminate that. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Another indication this is specifically being written to the Jews, though we do reap benefit from it. The, the Greek word here, um, the offspring, is sperma. It means seed, and it specifically is talking about the seed of Abraham, the Jews. God has given help to the Jews over and over and over again. Right? He has rescued them. He has developed a special relationship with them by giving his word through them, by giving Messiah through them, by carrying his plan of the ages forward through them. Why were they picked? We don't know why God approached Abraham, who at the time was known as Abram or Avram, who was a polytheist, worshipped multiple gods, and yet the God of the universe came to him and, and picked him out. For some reason, we don't know. For his glory. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, it's a big word, propitiation. I've said before, some of your translations will, will use the word atonement here, to make atonement for the sins of the people. That's an Old Testament phrase where they would cover over, which is what atonement means. They would cover over the, the sins of the people by the blood of animal sacrifices. Jesus did not just cover over our sins. He made propitiation, which is a placating force. He completely satisfied that debt that was owed by all mankind. In the animal sacrifice system that God set up, God was saying, you Jews, if you do this, I will take the sins and be responsible for them if you do this in faith. So the debt was still owed, but now it was owed by God, and he paid it through his son and made complete satisfaction. Okay. 
So, that verse 17, he, may, he, was, uh, he had to be made like his brothers. It wasn't that Jesus is a created being. It is that God had to birth him into, he had to begat himself into creation so that he could not just experience what we were experiencing, but he could experience it in perfection and then be able to carry forth as the sacrifice. And that not only gave him the right to be the sacrifice, but that perfection gave him the right to be the one who offered the sacrifice, the high priest. Right? Verse 18, for because of himself, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you ever feel like no one understands my problem? This person, that person, this government entity, that church, whatever, is causing me great ill will. And I don't know that anybody knows how I feel. No one understands my situation. No one's going through the same struggles and never has gone through the same struggles with sin that I have. Well, guess what? Right here it says that Jesus did. And in fact, he brought those struggles and those sins into subjection and became those sins on the cross. Not only as the perfect sacrifice, but as the perfect one to offer the sacrifice. So that we have a brother who is our family, spiritually, who relates perfectly to our situation. And so we can take to, to the Father through Jesus all of the issues that proceed from our life, whether it's a sin issue or somebody coming after us issue or whatever else, we can stand uh, with Jesus before the Father, and that gives us strength to stand before our adversary. Let's close in prayer, and we'll pick it up next time in chapter 3. Heavenly Father, there's deep and weighty subjects that you've given us in your word, and especially to this um, group of Hebrews that were the original recipients of this letter. And yet, even though it was written directly to them, we can reap benefit because of your wisdom. It's not just about them, it's just about Jesus. And whereas they had that special relationship with you in Old Testament times, we have a special relationship with you in the church age here because of your son. It's in his great and glorious name we praise you and give you thanks and pray. Amen. Thank you.